Hi everyone, this is Kaz and welcome to Stepping Out. My guest today is Dan Raven-Ellison, who has become a bit of a hero to me over the last few months as I've been following his story and work. He's a geographer and explorer and has worked with National Geographic and Friends of the Earth and he is well qualified to talk about all things pathways. As not only that, he is a former geography teacher and in 2014 he walked across the UK's 69 cities and 15 national parks. He decided to start a project and that was to map pathways as directly as possible between villages and towns. During lockdown, 700 volunteers from across the country collaborated to produce a first draft of the Slowways network, creating a stunning Slowways map in the process. This incredible effort has led to the creation of 7,500 routes that collectively stretch for over 2,500 towns and villages. He is really out there in terms of countryside and urban environmental protection and access and has been spreading the word on the likes of the BBC, The Guardian and throughout schools and councils. So you can imagine my delight when Dan agreed to talk to me about his projects. We talk about Slowways, his pathway mapping project, the National Park City project and his children's books and of course how he feels when he walks. So grab a map or an app and find your way on a walk to hear all about Dan's story and I'll see you on the other side. Enjoy. Hi Dan, thank you so much for joining me on Stepping Out. It's really great to have you on, it really is. It's a pleasure to be here, thanks for asking me. So you've had a really interesting lockdown, haven't you? Because a lot of people who've been sort of clearing out their garage and and doing all that kind of thing, but not you. Um, so I'd firstly like to ask you about your current project, Slowways, which is such a fascinating one. And most people kind of lie in bed and think, what if I could do such and such? But you've not only done that, you've taken it to another level. And I recently watched your webinar about it and I'm completely hooked into finding out how it develops. But would you mind giving us an overview of exactly what Slowways is and why you created it? Yeah, so, I mean, I love walking. Um, I love being out on foot exploring the country. I've done a lot of walking around the country like many people listening to this would have done and like, like you've done. And it's funny when you, when you get your eye in and start thinking about our incredible network of footpaths that crisscross the country, you begin to realize some stuff about them that could be maybe a bit better. You know, mm-hmm. it's like we've inherited this sort of network of 200,000 kilometers of footpaths. But to my mind, in some ways, they're a bit like a big pile of spaghetti on a plate. They're a bit of a mess, both in terms of how to make sense of them for some journeys but also just simple things like i don't know if, you, if you're going to travel from london to glasgow by car then you'd expect there to be a fairly easy route to follow and you expect there to be signs telling you where to get off mm-hmm. and with our footpaths it's all just a bit more elusive you almost need to have a duke of edinburgh award or a gcse in geography to sort of make sense of the whole thing and so i got wondering why it was so complicated and, and got thinking about the history of our footpaths and how really most of them connect up neighboring settlements because that's where people wanted to get from where they wanted to get to yeah and got thinking about this principle like you know what if what if we could all walk reasonably directly safely enjoyably between any two neighboring settlements and when you ask that question you begin to realize that actually what if there was a network that would allow you to walk to a neighboring settlement or then walk to another neighboring settlement and then another one to go on long distance journeys and what might that look like so Slowways is really this idea of creating a national network of walking routes that connect up all the towns and all the cities in the UK, as well as thousands of villages, making use of that infrastructure that we've inherited, but thinking about how we can reimagine it for our futures as well. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's the project actually kind of made up of? Like, what were you actually aiming to do with those footpaths and what, where are they currently? Well, most of these paths I'm talking about, you can see on an Ordnance Survey map. Um, so back in the first lockdown last year, I put a call out and 700 volunteers came forward to start mapping out routes connecting up neighbouring settlements. And they were challenged to create routes that were reasonably directly, reasonably direct, safe, um, enjoyable, accessible, having resting points and all these different things within a, within a methodology, yeah. but always using paths that really already exist. And inevitably, there's some road walking as well. It's, it's impossible not to cross a road or use a road for different segments of, of, of routes. Mm. Um, and so the idea is to connect up neighbouring settlements, but you know, inevitably, many of the routes actually go through some of the most incredible countryside, AONBs, national parks. You know, if you want to walk from Sheffield to Manchester, then you're going to take yourself through the Peak, Peak District, aren't you? Yeah, sure. Um, so, so the purpose of the project fundamentally is about inspiring and supporting more people to walk more often for more purposes, but crucially further as well. And make, creating these routes so it's easier for people to, to, to imagine those journeys and carry them out. Yeah, because I was reading that, that there's big deviations. Obviously, you know, if you're going to go from point A to point B, it's never going to be in a completely straight line. But you discovered that there's there's lots of deviations to, you know, there could be a possibly a better route to get there. Is that because a lot of the countryside is kind of off limits? So um, that's why the deviations are so big. Why, why do you think that particularly is? Well, it just depends on where you are in the country. I mean, if you're in Scotland then actually you have a lot of freedom to take um, a straight line if you want to. It might be quite physically challenging for you, um, yeah. but but there's a lot of freedom there. And actually the problem in Scotland is you've got the access, but it's unclear maybe where the suitable paths are. Whereas in England and Wales, we've got far less access. There's far more private land to avoid, like you say. Mm. Um, but, you know, actually, I think we have an incredible level of access in England and Wales. I and mean, there's this narrative in the public at the moment, which is right, I think, that we want we should have a, a right to roam across England and Wales like there is in Scotland. Yeah. But compared to most countries in the world, a lot of countries, we have an incredible level of access. But like you say, one of the things that came out of the Slowways project so far is, you know, the reality that, that for many people who live in villages, towns, cities, that want to walk to a neighbouring place, that, that, that to walk that journey is unacceptably long because you're either avoiding private land or busy roads or lack of bridges um, or dangerous areas, you know, whatever it may be, to the point where, you know, people just don't make journeys and they drive instead. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're, we're a lot better than America, aren't we, in a lot of ways? Because obviously, I was reading a book recently about how they've kind of, you know, just roaded over most things and sometimes you can't even cross the road without going miles and miles round. So we've been fairly good in, in that sense, haven't we, compared to other countries, I guess. Well, we've maintained the, the, the rights of access. And of course, the, the Ramblers Don't Lose Your Way campaign is about trying to make sure that we maintain those rights of access. But when you look at like the Southwest, I mean, what you're just saying then about having to go a long way around because of roads, when you look at the Southwest of England, you know, there, there are a large number of places where you've got villages that either, you know, don't have accessibility to neighbouring places or because footpaths became hollowways, became lanes, became dual carriageways. Um, actually, walking to a neighbouring place is so dangerous that people just wouldn't do it. And just the simple thing of having new permissive footpaths through some fields could unlock people's ability to safely make journeys that at the moment they just wouldn't make by foot because it's too dangerous. 
Yeah, completely. I mean, where I live here, there's a, a 60 mile an hour road between my village and the next where are town. You? And that is extreme. Uh, well, I live in a little village just outside Tring uh, in beautiful. Hertfordshire. So if we were to, well, yeah, really, really lovely area, beautiful area, actually. And they, I have discovered um, many ways to walk to Tring, um, sort of down the canal and around the back routes. But in terms of walking directly down a road, that is an extremely dangerous road to walk down because there are no pathways either side. But yeah, it is making sure that people have access and that are, they're aware as well of the places that they can walk to get down there. So that's a real kind of point of discovery. But I just wanted to ask you about that um, don't lose your way project and right to roam as well because they're two separate projects that um don't lose your way just in case people don't know what that is is they're attempting to map historical footpaths in the uk before the deadline in five years is that right so they have to be adopted and maintained by local authorities is that correct yeah they have to be on the map and they have to be recorded as as yeah. footpaths or they'll be lost unless we campaign to make that otherwise yeah and the right to roam um and we were talking about scotland earlier because scotland have a lot more leeway in terms of where people can they can pretty much roam where they like whereas in in england and wales this right to roam project is campaigning to keep private property available for walking on so i think it's providing it doesn't damage livestock land or property that that's what they're looking to do so are you collaborating with with those projects to cover all the bases and sharing information so, I mean, they're very different things in many ways. I mean, the Don't Lose Your Way campaign with Ramblers, for me, is a marked difference between that and Slow Ways. Firstly, we are collaborating, and Jack Cornish, who, who, who leads that for Ramblers, came along to the first Slow Ways Hack Day, where we started developing ideas. He's been a judge in our competitions. He's volunteered on the way through. And there's been lots of conversations between us and Ramblers on, on ways to collaborate. And part of that is about data sharing, but part of it also is just about sharing energy between people who enjoy walking and being outside, you know. While Don't Lose Your Way is very much about these historic paths, which which were created in those places because that's where people needed to get to and from then, whenever that went then was. Yeah. You know, we were just talking just now about people having to walk the long way around because of various reasons um, to get between neighbouring places now. I think that tension of more people being aware of having to walk the long way around with slow ways will help us think about where we need paths for the future. Yeah. So since those historic paths were created, you know, there's new villages, there's new towns, there's new desires, there's new roads. So we need new paths for the future. In my mind, it's not enough to say that we just need to protect paths of the past. We need new access. And actually, you know, coming out of the European Union, I'm not going to get into you know the politics of that. But one of the things that's a result of that is that there's a new land management payment scheme that, that may well be successful with farmers, which could pay farmers for providing public benefit. And that public benefit could include people having a high level of access to, to land, which could then provide more, more ways through, which I think is very exciting. Um, I'm very supportive of the, the, the campaigning for Right to Rome. Um, and actually, I've been an advocate for a long time. Um, about an urban right to roam, which I think is actually should be easier to establish than a rural right to roam in many ways. And I think that that many of us assume that we have a right to access the city. And actually, we feel very frustrated when we realise we come across a place that we can't access. And I think it'd be easier, actually, in some ways to mark out the parts of a city that we should have access to um, than maybe some of the tensions in rural places. But, you know, we should have access to it all and we should stop being such a, a paternal society that assumes that people will do wrong, put more trust in people's hands, I think. So making it more accessible, then presumably it will obviously open up to everybody who 
also perhaps don't want to use maps or don't have the first idea of how to get from point to point. And what I love about this project in particular is that each segment of the journey would be verified, wouldn't it, by someone else. So much like maybe Spotify or, or I don't know, if you rate a book, for example, almost like a review site. So how do you plan to roll that information out? And will there be an app that people can access it on? How will that work? So... Um, whatever you think of Amazon um, as a platform, in some ways you can think of slow ways as being a bit like Amazon okay. in the sense that, that you, you would come to the website in order to find routes that you would like to, to walk or that you would like to help us to test and, and verify. And you can also use that site to plan long distance journeys. You're planning to walk from Huddersfield to Bracknell or Dronogretz to Land's End. Brilliant. You can use it to plan out how you're going to plan that journey. Um, and the simplest thing that people will be able to do if they want to get more involved is to leave a review like on Amazon where you give it a certain number of stars and then maybe you give it a thumbs up to say whether or not you think it should be in the, the Slowways network or not. You might want to say that it shouldn't be because you're, you've got concerns about it for some reason. Yeah. Some people, a much smaller number of people, we're going to ask to volunteer to survey routes for us, which is far more involved. It will take longer and it's more detailed. But what we want to do is collect information about um, gradient, accessibility, path widths, features on paths that people may um, want to avoid. Um, cows has been a big issue that's come up in terms of people wanting to potentially have routes they can take, mm -hmm. which would be likely to be cow free. Yeah. So that we can put together a picture for people of whether or not a route may meet their needs, their mobility needs especially, or their desires. Um, and like you say, I mean, this thing about verifying is important. I mean, at the moment, if you use a, a, a standard uh, mapping platform to, to to plot a route between say Huddlesfield and Macclesfield or something then you know you're probably not going to trust that platform in terms of whether or not the route's going to be enjoyable and safe mm. but if you know that two three four five ten people have walked a route before and they're all saying do you know what this is pretty good yeah then that's going to give you more confidence yeah and presumably you know it's going to be up to date as well you know you can see the last time it was reviewed maybe and and who's actually kind of walked out. But how much information have you already got on those routes then? So you had these volunteers that sort of put all the routes together. Um, where are you getting the information on those routes now? Do you have a sort of set basic knowledge of those routes that you can already add to the system? Or, or is it literally people are gonna go in, volunteer for this from scratch and, you know, really kind of say what they think about it. And, and that's gonna be the first piece of information that will go on about that route. So, Back um, in the first lockdown, like I said, we had these 700 volunteers who stepped up and used the OS Maps sort of platform to use OS Maps to create slowways routes for us. And they volunteered doing that, volunteered about a year's worth of time in a single month and created seven, well, actually seven and a half thousand routes that connect up two and a half thousand towns, cities, villages in this sort of incredible sort of geometric network. And they did that following a methodology around directness and um, uh, safety and enjoyability, different factors. Right. Um, so that's all been drawn out, but that's all been drawn out just on paper so far, well, not, not paper, like digitally. So we've got all those routes, but everyone's been locked down so much and we've been getting ready so much to for the next phase of the project that they haven't been tested. No one's walked them yet. Right. So we're looking for 10,000 plus people to help us once to come out of the current lockdown. So looking at sort of late spring, early summer to um, go and walk all these routes and make sure they work and start reviewing them. Um, so you're looking to embellish that information that, you know, you haven't got the information already that people are probably going to find and just review and um, confirm. You're looking for people to actually really put their 
um, information in themselves from, you know, from what they find? You know, if they want to, I think there's there's, there's three levels, you know, four, maybe four levels. One level, you know, you just want to walk to a neighbouring settlement. We've probably got a good way for you to do that. Um, second level is you're planning a long distance journey um, and you want help with that. And we've actually got this cool bit of functionality that's inspired by playlists on Spotify um, called Waylists. So the idea is if you're planning that journey from John O'Groats to Land's End or Swansea to um, Newcastle or something, if you imagine that every slow way connects up neighbouring settlements and you can build up these segments then a bit like songs in a playlist what you can do is you can build up your route uh, connecting up neighbouring places and then download all those those files to then use on your navigation app to find find your way around oh that sounds like magic <laughs> i just love the thought of that happening isn't that fun so you can sort of like just scroll through the websites yeah. collecting these routes and just fitting them together Brilliant. the third leave a review and the fourth way if you want to get far more deeply involved most people won't want to do this is you know you're going to go outside um walk of routes take photographs literally measure the, the width of the path measure great count up the number of styles count up the number of gates um so that we've got that information in the system but that's really that yeah that's exactly what i was getting at i suppose because you know there's such there's so many levels of information like when i walk a path you know you can walk down there and say okay there's a bridge on this one or or that goes there or this is at the end of it there's a gate um but you know this has got such scope to put such an amazing amount of detail in presumably you know as it builds that's so good for walkers well like myself but everybody to know right okay we can see the accessibility that's absolutely fantastic because that's really going to open it up to the masses isn't it and and encourage people to go out and walk so that's absolutely brilliant i mean the map looks incredible i've seen a picture of the map and it, it must be taking so many painstaking hours to pinpoint exactly where to place all the lines. I mean, I know obviously once you've got that information, it kind of automatically puts it in. How do you actually map the pathways and how long are they if there was if you were to sort of jam them all together? Do you know? If you were to jam them all together, mm. they're about 100,000 kilometres long, which wow. is about two and a half laps of the equator in distance. That's um, incredible. The average slowway in England is about 12 kilometres. In Scotland, they're more like 18 kilometres. Right. Um, but there are thousands that are you know, under 10 kilometers, there are hundreds that are just five kilometers. Um, yeah. And it's really the landscape that determines um, the, the, the distance of these routes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the methodology that that all the volunteers were asked to follow were, you know, you're connecting up these two neighboring places that we've, we've defined already for them, where need to be connected. And then it, there's almost a game of finding your way through the landscape where you're trying to find um, paths that you're allowed to use, going as direct as you can, staying off as road as you can, connecting up public transport wherever you can, having a resting point every five to 10 kilometers. And when I say resting point, I mean like a pub or a convenience shop mm. or um, a hotel, somewhere where you can get a sandwich and potentially sleep for the night yeah. as well. Um, and then being as accessible as possible as well. The, the, the least important things with slow ways in terms of our criteria were about being enjoyable and beautiful. Um, now, inevitably, most of the routes are enjoyable and beautiful and they are priorities for us. But there are lots of projects about going on a recreational walk that's a nice circle that takes you past a church and a tree and a waterfall. These routes are about getting you from A to B. That's what they're about. Yeah, so complete practicality, really. So how did the, how did the volunteers actually record it? And then you've put it on this incredible map. So how, how does that information kind of get fed into the computer, if you know what I mean, to make this brilliant map that almost looks like one of those sort of 3d models but flat kind of thing well if you're using 
OS maps who we collaborated with or another mapping platform. You can, you can design your route by literally clicking out where it is that you want the route to go on a map. And then you can then save that as a particular file called a GPX file. And that GPX file, a bit like a PDF file or yeah. a Word file or whatever, can then be uploaded onto a device that you can then use to sort of navigate around the place. Now, we ask people to submit those GPX files to us and they then get displayed on the website. Right. And moving forward, you know, we were just talking about accessibility there. Um, moving forward, while a slow way is the principle that you should be able to walk between two neighboring settlements, we're very aware that that, 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 that actually there are many ways in which you could have a good way to complete that journey that might be different from other ways of doing it. So I don't know, maybe you're, you've got to walk through um, a city and you want to miss out the canals, or maybe you are going through the mountains and you'd rather walk further to miss out the mountain passes, or maybe you're willing to walk the long way around to miss out as many gates as possible, whatever the reason might be. You can imagine there might be multiple reasons why there'd be multiple different routes to complete a journey between two places. So actually the invitation is there that, that if you look on a map and you realize that there's a, a route from say beaconsfield to slough mm -hmm. um then when you see that if you actually if you know a better way then you can upload that better way and if you imagine as people then begin to review the different routes we can then tell people there's five different ways to complete this journey this is the one that people like most for these reasons that's the we're trying to get to just so much scope there really completely i mean and obviously once you've got those paths made what are you planning to do with integrating them with, say, local authorities and that kind of thing? You know, how, how is that going to come together so that it's recognised locally? Well, so firstly, the more people who walk them and review them and verify them, the more confident we can be in them that maybe they should appear in printed documents or have, maybe have a physicality in the landscape. Um, so that process of them being used and reviewed is, is really important to build up um, that confidence. And then the plan is that every year or so, we release the entire network of all the routes um, as a sort of a creative commons public good that anyone can then innovate with, which means that local authorities, charities, businesses could all think about how they might want to use those. So that might, for example, mean in you know Hertfordshire, for example, um, the local council thinking about um, ways to create better routes to connect up neighboring places to promote you know, active transport or to promote tourism. But equally, maybe you are an organization that really loves, I don't know, castles and walking or nature reserves and walking. Mm -hmm. And you can think of a way of taking all that data and creating your own website that uses the slow ways as a way of getting around. But what you want to do is construct something around a, a specialist area of interest, if that makes sense. Because on our website, we're not going to list all the nature reserves and all the castles mm. and, you know, all the pubs that you might be interested in. So other people can then innovate with the data in their own way. Yeah, there's just so many layers that you can add to it, isn't there? And and I know that you're you're sort of reaching out to councils, aren't you, to to come on board with this? And you've you've got quite a few on board already. I've actually emailed my local council with the information. Um, so yeah, I mean, obviously, I'll put all the, the details in in the um, episode anyway. So. So you're looking for them to kind of just support this project, be aware of it, get the name out there so that when things come along um, that, you know, they know what's going on and they can go, oh, OK, yeah, yeah, OK, we're on board with that because we need to protect this, that and the other. And you're you're telling them all that information in advance of this happening. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, when you, when you think about the different issues that are going on in the country at the moment, you know, we've got these layers of, of challenges that mm -hmm. we face. So we've got an ecological crisis, we've got a climate crisis, we've got a health crisis, we've got an economic crisis. I mean, it all sounds like doom and, doom and gloom, I know, an intermesh of crises. But when you think about it, 
the power of walking is that it can improve our mental health, mm-hmm. our physical health, our well-being. It can make us more creative, more productive, make us less likely to be absent from work. It can often be one of the only spaces at the moment where we can better connect with ourselves, with others, with nature, with other places. It covers all the bases, um, doesn't it? All the bases. So when you think about that, not only can it help us on, a, on an individual basis, but actually when you scale that up, it can help on a societal basis as well. So what we're saying to councils is, you know, will you pass motions to support slow ways by promoting it to local residents, by thinking about how you might integrate it with your planning policies and initiatives, maybe consider about where new paths could be put in that would help to strengthen the network, mm. um, but also asking local councillors to, to walk their local slow way as well. So all like really meaningful, useful stuff. And I'm, I'm fascinated by, um, you know, parish and town councils really, because you know, there's a lot that central government can do, clearly. They've got money and can create law and everything else. But, you know, in England alone, there's something like 10,000, um, you know, parish and town councils. That's an awful lot of local knowledge, power, connections, love, um, potential to not necessarily do stuff through force. But, you know, pe- often people know the farmer and if they just ask the farmer for, for access, maybe they'll get the access. Yeah. And, they'll know the local residents who maybe would benefit from this most or um, where the, the shortcuts could be created. So mm-hmm. I think that most local level of government is extraordinarily powerful for an initiative like this. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they have they have all the local knowledge and, and, and the history as well. I know, I mean, I live opposite our local parish clerk and she knows everything. I mean, she's been doing the job for so long that you can ask her anything. So there's such um, sort of local power there if you like but also they have they know people perhaps in the village that will be able to help them um roll this kind of thing out you know to encourage people to, to put it on their websites and that kind of thing so it's it's the perfect thing to do isn't it to kind of drill down to the local areas rather than you trying to disseminate to everybody in in the uk you know you've got that help yeah. locally so that's brilliant but talking about um crises and uh, i don't want to mention the dreaded lockdown every single time I talk to people but um, how has this how has that affected the project because obviously that's come right in the middle or the beginning maybe of this project hasn't it so so how how have you managed to keep this mission on track well the, the first lockdown weirdly ahead of the first lockdown when I first started working on the project I thought that the lockdown was going to be a problem and it was going to delay the project mm. for the foreseeable future but actually we just moved the project online and it was actually a catalyst because suddenly there were lots of people who love walking, who love maps, who were trapped indoors, who had time on their hands, Perfect. who basically just made loads of routes. So actually it was a real catalyst for this project. This latest lockdown, um, where we are now in, in February 2021, um, it's just delayed things slightly on the public side because because the routes are on average 12 kilometres long in England, 18 kilometres in Scotland, like I say. Mm, yeah by definition, going and testing the routes at the moment would take everyone outside their local areas. And because they're one-way routes as well, um, you know, how do you get back again? So, but but the silver lining is that we've used the time well to improve what we're doing. And so when we do launch, we'll be in a better position to work with everyone. So it, it's been okay. And I think that also, as well as that, on a, on a, on a larger and maybe more hyper-local level as well, you know, I think there's there's, I don't know what thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people mm. who have discovered or rediscovered walking. Yeah, and you know, there's a lot of people talk, talking about walking locally, and I just hope that slow ways will. There's a lot of organisations that talk about getting people walking more, and what's different about slow ways is we're saying yes, we want people to more people to be walking more, 
but we also want people to be walking for more purposes but also further yeah so lots of us walk for recreational reasons mm-hmm. but fewer of us walk the same similar distances for functional reasons yeah and as well as that lots of us will walk for five kilometers fewer will go for 10 15 20 kilometers and hopefully this project this initiative will inspire people to, to try out different reasons and different distances yeah absolutely did you get any actual um funding to support this because it strikes me it's such a massive nationwide project involving lots of people and you know lots of time and information how did you how did you fund that well we got a bit of funding from um a trust fund to help with the original hack day um and then to set up the sort of volunteering effort at the very beginning not a massive sum but enough enough money just to put some time into it um and to sort of buy in some of the resources we needed to to, to make it work um and then um but but you know in terms of resource if you imagine that a year's worth of time was volunteered in a single month yeah. like i say the lion's share has been voluntary um and then more recently just over the last um well since christmas we've had some funding from paths for all in scotland and sport england and england both around how th- thinking about how we can develop the slowways network so we can get more people walking being active being healthy especially people who have been hardest hit by covid and who maybe are less likely to go on journeys using strategic footpaths like slowways mm. um so we had some initial seed funding to sort of pilot the idea which got us going and then we've had more significant funding um recently to help create the website and get things ready so that actually we can have a conversation you know if you imagine creating the seven thousand routes was a challenge but but doable um the really complicated bit which is coming up is if you create seven thousand routes and you want to have seven thousand conversations with maybe between ten and a hundred thousand people yeah. about them, then you need to have a pretty good website in yeah. order to be able to handle all those those mm, communications. That, that's that's the thing that costs money, and also it's yeah. um it's lovely to ha- to have that support, isn't it? There to be able to sort of reach out and do that and have that really good website. So, how do people volunteer for this? Because you are looking, you're still looking for volunteers, presumably. Is that right? Yeah, we need as many volunteers as we can. Yeah. So how, how are you doing that? Is that all through the website? Because I've signed up and just put my name down. So that's all people need to do. Is that right? Just visit slowways.uk, whack your name in to sign up, and then we'll let you know when we're ready to go. Um, welcome to follow us on Twitter and, and Instagram as well. And then you know, the volunteering can be as simple as walking a slow way and then telling a friend about your journey. Um, doing a leaving a review doing a survey like I described before mm. but I'm really interested as well in what we call long slow ways and people who want to go on 100 200 300 kilometer journeys and, and share the stories of, of those adventures and these these lists that I was telling you about to plan those journeys um you know we were just talking just then about you know you're just giving examples of people walking to go to the shops and see friends and things for functional reasons and I think quite often people are thinking about those journeys as being maybe, you know, you've got an hour spare, so you can walk to the shops yeah. or you're going to go and walk to see a friend. I'm actually very interested in people who, who maybe, I don't know, they're finished at university and they've got a couple of weeks spare, so they're going to walk 200 kilometres to get home. There's a, a guy who I know uh, who contacted us who, who lost his job in Swindon, um, had some time on his hands and wanted to reflect and walked like to Falmouth to get home wow. um i think there were all these people making these very interesting journeys which are not necessarily about recreation they are about um 
um, purposeful journeys mm -hmm. which are related to work or employment or seeing family or friends or raising money for charity, whatever it may be, they're not just recreational. They're sort of dual purpose. Mm. And I'm really hear more of those kinds of stories yeah and it's and it's getting that um word out there because there are so many i mean i'm a member of a few of these so many walking groups on facebook uh, and other and on instagram and, and i'm sure twitter as well but it and there are so many people on there willing to walk i mean the community i found myself in of walkers they are so enthusiastic everybody's up for a challenge this just seems the perfect thing uh, to roll out to all of those people that just go, oh, okay, right, this is something different. You know, we we do all these ultras and, and everything. We're really into all of those kind of things. And this is just slightly different. You know, could there be a purpose for you to walk from here to here that you've never tried before and actually that you might not have realised existed? So it, it's um, now it's time to get the word out, isn't it? That's right. And I think that, you know, a really important thing that I'm very excited about with the project as well is the fact that they finish in in large villages towns and cities is really important mm -hmm. you know in, in part it's because that's the way that footpaths connect up different parts of the country anyway but what that means is that when you finish your walk you know you're going to finish somewhere where you can choose to eat and sleep in a wide range of places you, know, you can eat in tesco or you can eat in a five-star restaurant mm -hmm. you can eat in a kebab shop um, or pizza express you can sleep in a premier inn or an airbnb or a five-star hotel and at the moment, with a lot of rural countryside walking, by the very nature of where you are, your options are limited. So either you may not get a place or you may not be able to afford a place or you may not want, not, may, may not want to stay in the place that's available to you on this sort of long distance route yeah. you're on. But because you're on slow ways finishing in towns and cities, well, yes, you might have a half hour of suburban walking at the end. But at the end of the day, it's going to open up. Um, walking in the country to be far more inclusive and I would say desirable because you know if you can finish and stay in a premier inn for 29 quid mm. and eat some pizza and watch some Netflix before you and walk 20 or 30 or 40 kilometers the next day well actually that's where a lot of people would like to be like a, not a lot of people would probably prefer not to sleep in a tent mm. um, well and you have to carry it as well don't you that's the other thing exactly so I think it I think it opens things up and it makes those sort of journeys more affordable mm. um so, you know, rather than staying in a pub that costs 200 quid and be able to stay in one pub over sort of two nights, yeah. if you could spread that cost out over four or five days, then then you can go on more interesting journeys. Oh, completely. I, I totally would be up for this. I'm getting quite excited. <laughs> right. It's just, it's, it's really lovely to know that that resource is going to be out there and also lovely to know that you can be part of helping to build it. I mean, what a legacy to leave behind for you and but for all the people that are doing it as well. So... Um, absolutely brilliant thing to get involved in and also I suppose walking groups can get on board with this because they then have access to their groups and then they can bring more people on board and make that a thing you know we are going to do this as part of this project so that's another way to do that so there's so many ideas that keep kind of pinging around in my head for this so it's absolutely brilliant yeah and I think and I think a walking group you know could choose to try and walk all the like like a treasure hunt try and walk as many slow ways in their county exactly. or their area mm. in a day or as a group, you know, look at a look at a slowway route and think about actually what could be done to link up these two places better than than is currently, and actually use your group power and imagination yes. to think about forging new routes. So that, I think the the dynamic of groups is is fascinating for this project in terms mm. of how this project may spark ideas and, and new energies. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know um, my trail body, Laura, we're always talking about different routes and we live in exactly the same village. So most of the routes we go, oh yeah, yeah, we've been there. But often we'll say, oh, have you been down that way? And 
I don't know something she knows and vice versa. And we live in the same village. So there's that lo- there's that knowledge of a group that you wouldn't necessarily have yourself. If you say, if I went to set off and say, okay, I'm going to do this path. I think it goes there, there, there. Someone else I talk to may say, oh, well, I've been around there. And, you know, and I would never have seen that. And I've discovered a lot of paths during lockdown myself through walking that have joined up somewhere else. I had no idea was there. And obviously everybody's walking in different ways and they've got different apps and all this kind of stuff. So um, it's a brilliant way to connect it all up together, isn't it? Yeah, I've I've discovered a whole golf course close to where I live in London that I didn't know existed. But during lockdown, this sort of, this golf course turned into a a new temporary meanwhile park. Um, And yeah, it was just a whole golf course um, close to where I am in in Ealing that I had no idea was there because it was just sort of, I don't know, tucked away into like a bit of a, a weird U-shaped corner of a bit of suburbia. Yeah. Um, but it also sort of exposed to me almost the injustice of that, you know, that there's this sort of whole private, let's call a golf course in a city, a private park that's mm. overlooked by um, blocks of flats with some of the lowest levels of access to green space in the capital. Um, so they're looking out across this this private park and temporarily got access during the, the last lockdown. Um, and it's almost scandalous to me, really, that, that these things exist in our cities when there's so many people who don't have access to green spaces. Yeah, and golf courses are weird ones because there there are quite a lot of them that you don't always notice because they're tucked away in, in like you say, the little countryside sections next to an urban area. So, um, yeah, important to keep those that access there, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm not, I think golf is pretty incredible, really. The idea you can hit a ball a few hundred metres and get it into a hole from that distance is you know, put snooker to shame, I think. Wouldn't really. happen to but, me. <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't happen to me either. But I think, you know, right tree for the right place, yeah. and I think the right kind of park in the right kind of place as well. Yeah, and it's nice to have those um, pathways that skirt around the golf courses. We've got one locally to us and, you know, you, you almost need to walk through it to connect up one village to another so that's actually quite useful that you can walk around the edge and just watch you don't get hit by a golf ball obviously but they're so beautiful as well and they've got loads of wildlife in them and you know you just see things all the time especially in the mornings where there's a big stretch of green it's it's absolutely lovely all the evenings so um good places to walk and, and isn't that the perfect example of where you know we we're talking about right to Rome earlier it's for me that's a perfect example of where any golf course really should have a right to roam and yes when you walk across a golf course you should be responsible and careful um and you know you, people have a right to roam to walk across golf courses in, in scotland but you just have to be responsible and respectful yeah. and i think we should have the same same thing in england yeah exactly so just talking for a minute about because we were talking about the whole of the uk there um you made i must mention this because it's absolutely brilliant it had me completely spellbound you made a fabulous one minute movie in collaboration with friends of the earth where the minute was split up according to what type of land covers the country um and it was shot from above via a drone and you were walking in the shot below so you can see you from above can you tell me about that the preparation for it and was the notion a kind of was it a precursor to the mapping or because of it or alongside how does it work this project was before Slowways. This is this was back in 2018 now. Yeah. Um, and my background, I was a jo- I'm a geographer. I, I used to be a geography teacher. I love going out and exploring stuff and telling stories and exploring in creative ways. And, you know, I, it sort of began to dawn on me that, that even though I was a geographer and a former geography teacher, that I had no idea what Britain looked like. It's just too big to mm-hmm. get your head around. And I began to think that if I didn't know what Britain looked like, that maybe other people don't either. 
And so many people read stories in the media saying this idea that Britain's full, you know, Britain's, it's so full, but there's no space for, you know, refugees, there's no space for migrants, there's no space for affordable housing, there's no space for more nature, you know, there's this sort of idea that has come across in the media for some parts of the media for, for decades. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I worked with Friends of the Earth, ran a poll and found that about one in three people in Britain think that nearly half the country is built on. Um, and I just knew that that was not right. Um, so I, I set about working with Friends of the Earth to make this film. Um, shot from above, like you say, where every second of the film is 1% of what the country looks like from above. And what it reveals is that about 5 to 7% is built on, not half. Wow, yeah. But about half the landscape, nearly half the landscape, is used for animal-related agriculture. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you go through the countryside, you look at the crops, about half of all the crops are fed to livestock, and then there's massive areas of pasture as well. And so what that kind of tells me, really, is that at this time of all these crises we were just talking about, we're essentially prioritizing milk, cheese, and wool over affordable housing, large-scale rewilding, um, better access to the countryside, and more sustainable consumption habits. Yeah. It's just bizarre to me that it's that way around. So I made the film because I think that we can't make proportionate decisions and come up with proportionate solutions if our geographic imaginations are getting the proportions of our country all confused. Yeah, and it really is incredible because it's such an eye-opener, not only from the information and the detail point of view, but also just the landscape is incredible. I mean, isn't it amazing? Like, you you just wouldn't get that opportunity. And I've been pinging that link around all over the place because it's just lovely. So that's that's really good. And you're also making another one, a similar thing, aren't you, on National Park, similar film, which you're crowdfunding for, is that right? I was crowdfunded for that. Actually, that film came out just over a week ago. Oh, now, right, did it? Um, which is super excited to share that. Oh. And, you know, that one was made both as a celebration of our national parks. Um, but, you know, I'm absolutely delighted that the government has committed to this target of protecting 30% of the UK for nature recovery by 2030, which is a, a part of the campaign for nature, which is a global mission to protect 30% of the world for nature by 2030. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just aware of the fact that the government had included in their statistics our national parks, which is, you know, completely fine um, um, to some extent. But the, the, the issue with that is that very large chunks of our national parks are not really, you know, prioritised for nature recovery. Mm. So when you watch the film, you realise that about a quarter of our national parks, for example, are pasture. Um, and chunks of that pasture are brilliant for wildlife. They are farmed in a way which are biodiverse with all kinds of species because of the type of grazing that takes place but there's also an awful lot of really bad grazing Mm. and there's also large amounts of moorland which is burnt for you know bird shooters effectively Mm. so i wanted to 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 just point out that what the science shows is that yes our national parks are absolutely fantastic but that if we're going to add up the tallies of numbers of what should be included in the government statistics on what's protected for nature we should include part of our national parks but not all of them Right. Okay. So, so in terms of filming that, then obviously, um, the the UK one seems quite a kind of linear film as you were kind of going up the country. How did you show that then in the national parks? How did you film that to show that that particular bit of information that you really wanted to show? So, um, the European Union have got a, a, a satellite program called Copernicus, mm-hmm. and they use that to create a data set called Corian Land Cover Data, which is effectively adding up all the different types of land cover in the country. So 
um, whether it's um, pastures or moorland or bare rock or urban areas. And that data I could put into a geographic information system with some colleagues and count up how much, what proportion of the national parks are covered by these different types of land. Um, so I got those total numbers and got percentages and turned those percentages into seconds and then went on a journey going from the South Downs to Snowdonia, to the Cairngorm Mountains, to the Lake District, to the Peach District, to the North York Moors, to the Peach District, to the Norfolk Broads, um, and collected different examples of these different types of land as I went, filming them with a drone, with me walking through the middle of the shot, and then edited it, edited it all together to show the, the right mix, the right proportions of different types of land. Oh, fab. I cannot wait to see that. And I'm going to have to find that link from somewhere. Uh, that sounds just incredible. And and now you feel like you've kind of got a really broad understanding of the whole of the country. So that's absolutely brilliant. Um, I need to ask you about some other projects as if those weren't enough. You know, I think we could probably talk all night about this, but you've got some really interesting ones running at the moment. So tell me about National Park City, because unbeknown to me and i'm sure most people listening to this london is actually the world's first national park city is that right so what's that all about that's completely right so this was a campaign that i started about eight years ago and you're right there's a lot of people who don't know about this and we should be far more proud of it maybe than 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 maybe we are in terms of where we are internationally in terms of this this idea mm -hmm. you know essentially the insight here is that national parks are absolutely fantastic i think they're one of humanity's best ideas and fundamentally these are places that are protected by people in various different ways so that we have a better relationship with nature right that's what they're for for a better relationship with nature and so we can enjoy them as well and also to, to protect culture as well and the idea here is well what if we were to augment what if we were to put this idea of a national park on top of a city so the purpose of the city was to have a better relationship with nature, to enjoy ourselves and to celebrate the culture of that place. Like, what yeah. might that look like? And, you know, the, the history of our national parks really is, is thinking about nature conservation, obviously. But my, my general premise here would be that the urban wildlife in a city like London is not worth less than wildlife in the countryside. Mm. The peregrine falcons are just as valuable and just as beautiful as those in the countryside. And actually, there are more breeding pairs of peregrine falcon in London than there are in the Peter Street National Park or in the Yosemite National Park in the United States. Mm. So as urban areas are recognised internationally as a distinctive type of habitat, you know, why is it that there are national parks in the world that are glaciers, that are deserts, that are rainforests, that are moorland? Every single type of habitat you can imagine is represented within that family of national parks but not urban areas, so why not? Mm. What, what if, why not, is basically the question. But quite far into the campaign, I think what I learned was that the issue is not really that the urban areas are not included in the family of national parks worldwide. The issue really is that national park thinking is not happening in our cities. So landscape scale, large scale, long-term, hyper-local, holistic thinking about our cities as habitats, where we as animals occupy those habitats, mm. and we can all contribute towards their futures, is not part of our thinking for cities. And I think that is actually what the National Park City vision really offers, is a different way of thinking about cities that anyone in that environment can contribute to. And I suppose it's protecting that wildlife as well. I mean, I, I was just thinking there as you were speaking, I used to live in, um, I lived in Thornton Heath for a while when I was at university, and at the end of our garden, was a family of foxes over over the wall there was just a family of foxes in that little tiny little fieldy bit at the back 
And, you know, they're animals, like you say, and so are we. So what right have we got to kind of monopolise that area and not protect the other animals around us, even if we are in a built-up area? Because if, if that was all kind of left, the animals would begin to take over anyway, wouldn't they? So it's uh, they deserve a share of it as well. So, But also, I suppose, green spaces you're talking about as well. And um, so what, what exactly is the premise of the project? Like, what are you doing specifically to to keep that to keep well for a start to keep a London uh, as a city a national park city um but what are you doing to kind of um make that known to everybody within that project so I think it's really important to realize and acknowledge that I mean protection can come from very many different places and yes an obvious way that protection happens for nature and culture in national parks is from top-down you know policy and influence of, of government clearly that's what most British people will think about when they think about national parks and protection but actually a phenomenal amount of protection can happen through our everyday actions as just people mm. you know we in our gardens can not just protect life but we can create life by making our, our gardens and our balconies and our rooftops mm-hmm. and our streets uh, greener and allowing wildlife to flourish mm. And actually that collective power, I think in many ways is far stronger through individuals and business than maybe some of the stuff that government's doing at the moment. Mm. Um, So fundamentally the London National Park City is a movement, it's a vision, it's a place, it's all about making the city and our lives greener, healthier, wilder, getting more people outdoors more of the time and creating a new identity for the city. And we do that in 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 a range of different ways. But one of the ways that I'm most proud of that, that the London National Park City and the National Park City Foundation have worked on over the last um, year or so with Timberland, the outdoor brand, yep. uh, is a National Park City Rangers program. And very soon this will be 100 volunteer rangers who basically are working to um, spread best practices, ideas, things that are already happening in the city to make the city greener, healthier and wilder, but helping them to flourish more quickly and more equitably through the city. and. While we've currently got 50 rangers and by the summer there'll be 100 rangers, the ambition is to, to find the resources to have 1,000 rangers um, in the next few years, um, all playing this role of spreading good ideas and spreading positivity and helping, like I say, solutions that already exist in the city to, to flourish. Um, and some of that is through that grassroots action through these volunteer rangers. But that particular partnership with Timberland means we worked with the rap artist, Loyal Karna, um, who is a very famous rap artist who helped create a documentary that went on MTV that then helps us to reach new audiences that way as well. So part of our challenge is to help more people know about the London National Park City. But, you know, I think that many of the challenges we face are long term um, and we want to get things done right. And, you know, if anyone's listening to this and they can help us get our message out, then um, it'd be great for them to help with that. But it's an initiative that isn't just about London. There's campaigns in Newcastle, Glasgow, Cardiff. There's a fantastic campaign in Galway. I think Adelaide in Australia will be the next national park city. There's a guy in Tokyo who's beginning a campaign. There's a woman in uh, Manila who's just starting a campaign there. So it's very interesting to see how this 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 connection between urban people for greener, healthier, wilder cities, you know, is not just about London or the UK. Actually, it's turning into a bit of a um, a global family if you like yeah yeah and really changing the kind of landscape of how people think and feel and it always reminds me when i when i hear about things like this it, it just reminds me of the film back to the future you know where they keep projecting into the future and what it would be like and i always find that film so fascinating because 
whoever made that film back then has just tried to imagine what it would be like. And, you know, like you were talking about those ranges there, that would just be just normal. You know, these things that, that people like yourself have ideas, really brilliant ideas about that just becomes part of what we do. And it's just, it's hugely commendable. And what's great about it is that everybody can get involved with it. So it's absolutely fantastic, isn't it? What I challenge you to imagine on that as well. I mean, I think that, I think when people are traveling around, it's interesting. If you, know, if you go to like Australia or North America, then people are quite happy to drive very long distances to, you know, go away for the weekend. And in this country, we can, um, our sense of space is so different being Islanders that we sort of maybe are less willing to travel so far for a weekend away. Mm. Um, and, and equally, I think our sense of cities is very different as well. So a lot of people have ideas about London Actually, I think the people's geographic idea of where London ends isn't necessarily the reality. I mean, if you think about the scale of cities like Sydney, Tokyo, New York, these are big sprawling cities that cover very large areas. Mm. Um, the fact that we have a green belt means that people think that London often ends inside the green belt, but the commuter area of the city, London's economic influence covers much of the southeast of, of the country. Yeah. So you sitting in Shring, um, I would argue that in terms of hydrology, ecology, um, in terms of movements of people, that you're very much part of London where you are, mm. I would argue, not necessarily in your cultural identity, oh, yeah. but, but functionally, um, Tring is definitely within London, I'd argue. Yeah. Not administratively, don't get me wrong, not administratively. Mm-hmm. But I don't think the administrative boundaries are the same as the the urban boundaries. No, and you can I mean you can get into London from Tring in about I think about thirty five minutes. So yeah, you're absolutely right. We it's not very far to get there. So and, and they've just built a kind of new uh, car park to accommodate all the people that go into London. So you're absolutely right on that. And but yeah, I mean, it, and it just promotes the idea that people can have their own adventure to support all of these projects that that you're getting involved in so but also talking about about adventure now i know that you've completed lots of adventures with your son across the country which i think is great um so tell me about i don't know how old your son is but it just kind of leads me on to talking about your children's books because what a brilliant thing to do why did you start those and what are they about oh mission explore books Mm. we're we're are all quite old now but they are timeless in terms of what they're about so mission explore essentially was actually inspired by an article that was in the the daily mail um um over 10 years ago and now i think that basically showed these sort of circles the different distances that children were allowed to play out and you can see this great grandfather was basically allowed to go wherever he wanted and then the grandfather was a smaller circle the father was a smaller circle until you ended up with a child who basically wasn't allowed to leave their home um so inspired by that and also a love for geography, I got together with some, some other geography teachers and academics and artists and therapists. And we created this series of books called Mission Explore, which were full of provocations and challenges to dare children to explore and play outdoors in creative ways. And actually they're great for adults as well. And inside the activities are all kinds of things like, you know, um, can you cross uh, a wood without touching the ground? Uh, can you investigate the murder of an animal to work out who who killed it? Can you... Um, um, can you cross Trafalgar Square without getting a single bird into a flap? Um, all kinds of just sort of fun, quirky challenges. Yeah, um, things that kids just love. Oh, brilliant. And so they, they came out, the last one of those was published about sort of six, seven years ago now, yeah. but you can still get them secondhand and I strongly recommend them if, you've, yeah. if you're looking for 
alternative outdoor activity ideas to do with your kids then then they're really lovely and beautifully illustrated by tom morgan james yeah just the thing that kids love to do so i'm going to be looking those up for mine as well because i've got two 10 year olds so that would be perfect right um so i love finding out why people love the outdoors on here and that's kind of why i started this podcast in the first place actually so tell me about your personal love of walking because these projects are clearly a labor of love for you and the fact that you became a geography teacher means that you must have a obviously a definite interest in the land and that's why that's what's led you on to all these projects so how did walking come into your life and how does it make you feel mentally and physically because you've actually walked across the whole of the UK haven't you oh I wouldn't say that I've walked across all the national parks and all the cities and I've done a lot of walking but I've not quite walked across the whole of the UK I, I, I guess I've got two answers to that I mean one is that as a child I played an awful lot of hide and seek and wide games, like really big games of one, two, three, and a capture the flag over very large areas of woodland. Um, and when you play games like that, especially at night time and with big groups of friends, um, you end up not only getting to know the landscape intimately in terms of where you might go, but you often have large times on your own to connect with nature and your surroundings. You know, you've climbed a tree and you're like, got your face in some moss and you see a deer go by or you're looking at the wood, wood lights moving around or you're hiding in a hole that maybe there's a badger living inside um and so you you become quite intimately connected with the land even if you're not there for nature if that makes sense you're there you're playing but you, but and so i think that that's part of it and then, then a lot of my work being about wanting to not just keep that playfulness going but also secure that freedom for other people but i think that the other element which maybe sounds a bit drier in some ways, is that I think that I was, I think there's almost like a Stockholm syndrome thing that happens with walking, maybe that when you're very young, you know, you really hate walking, maybe, and that, you know, your parents sort of push you through it. And eventually they 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 sort of abuse you through these walking experiences enough that you become complicit enough that you start doing the same thing to your own child and you persuade yourself that you really love it. And I do love it, but I but I, I remember having some very punishing experiences with my parents. I mean, um, I walked the Grand Canyon without a single piggyback when I was four or five, I think. Um, <laughs> and so I think that I was, it's a mixture of being well-trained yeah. and very playful with it. And what doesn't kill you makes but, you stronger. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But um, but for me, there's often walking is the space where I feel, you know, calmest, most creative, mm. um, when I have the best, the best time with um, loved ones and friends. But for me, it's also deeply political as well about, you know, we listed all the benefits of walking before. And I think that if if we don't secure those things for ourselves and for others, then that's the detriment of us all. Mm. And I was I was talking to um, Roger Berlinson from Sport Walk recently, and he was saying that if he, you're talking about creativity then, he was saying if he needs to kind of thrash out an idea, he's a filmmaker, um, he goes out for a walk and he comes back with the answer. And I feel like that as well. Like sometimes oh, I'm feeling a bit frustrated with something or, you know, whatever especially with, you know, at the moment with everybody being at home, um, everybody needs a break from that. And if you haven't had the chance to make a decision about something, you go out for a walk and within five minutes, your mind's going and it's so lovely, isn't it? To be able to release that and, and get some answers just by being out in nature. There's something about it that's really, really special. I completely agree. Going for a walk or for me anyway, doing the washing up without putting the radio on has similar effects sometimes in terms of, just having a bit of time to yourself yeah and listening to everything so okay so i'm going to ask you this question um, which i ask everybody and it's if you could walk with anyone anywhere 
where would that be? It can be dead or alive. They can be famous. Somebody you know, somebody you don't know. Who would it be and what would you ask them? Um, I would go for a walk with my wife. Where would I go? I went to Sao Tome and Principe, this incredible island in the Gulf of Guinea, which I'm not sure I'd want to fly there again now with the climate crisis and everything. Mm -hmm. But there's a, a fantastic beach called Banana Beach, um, this incredible tropical beach. And I'd love to go for a walk with my wife down that beach and ask her to, you know, I think probably just go snorkeling with me and then just sort of hang out and have some, some drinks on the beach. I know that, that, that sound very creative, but oh, after lovely. being locked down, you know, for so long, the idea of being on a tropical beach, drinking oh. sort of gin and tonics and going snorkeling feels like that'd be a nice thing to be doing. Oh, I want to do that as well. <laughs> Let's just load of load of us go over. Um and we'll do it we'll do it. Maybe we could walk there somehow, you know, like uh, maybe just take a little boat somehow and get across, you know, you could do it slow ways, couldn't you? Because do you know what? I think the next iteration for slow ways and genuinely I'm very interested in this is what would the slow way be from, you know, London to New yes, York or something? I was gonna like. ask you about that. Would you do, you know, consider doing this abroad as well? Well, definitely interested in doing it abroad. That's definitely very interesting. But I think that the whole thing about sailing is very interesting. Mm. So if someone is willing to take an extra two weeks to complete a journey, um, then, you know, how do they complete that journey by sailboat or the, the greener, cleaner way? Yeah. I think actually it's not straightforward to know how to do that at the moment. Yeah. Um, so I think that'd be good to, to think to about that as a, that as a for sure. in the future. So I've put all the relevant links in the episode description and I will add all the ones we've talked about as well. But... Can you leave us with a message, a bit kind of David attenborough style about how we can all help and what we can do to support our land in a nutshell? Well, you know, at the moment, on a personal and societal level, we face an awful lot of challenges. And I hope that listening to this, people will be inspired by the idea of slow ways and think about how by going on a slow ways journey, whether it's walking to a neighbouring place or going on a longer distance journey, that can create an opportunity for us to connect with each other, connect with ourselves, connect with nature and consider the politics of, of going on a journey like that in terms of how it can contribute towards you know reducing our carbon emissions improving our health um and improving our access to the countryside and maybe our care for the countryside as well so yeah just reflect on the power of walking to to, to think about those things but then go a step further in terms of actually taking action on those things as well fantastic Dan, I really appreciate you joining me today and I know you must be super busy and I feel really privileged to hear about your work because I think we're really on the cusp of so many things happening to improve our countryside and probably the world. So thank you for your work and thank you for your support. Thank you very much for having me along. It's been great chatting. Thanks, Dan. What an epic and important chat that was. And if you found those topics interesting, please check the links in the episode description. And if you have the means to share, buy, like or subscribe to any of the things Dan is running, then please do so. And don't forget to volunteer for the Slow Ways Pathway Review Project as well. It's completely free and will be nothing but enjoyable and worthwhile. And you'll be helping to leave a legacy which won't go unrecognised. It's vital that we keep our countryside protected and appreciated and in the process provide a lovely environment for its citizens. Incidentally, if you're interested in joining my walking group, The Outsiders, then follow the link and sign up to hear all about our future walks in beds, bucks and hearts in the UK. Thank you all for listening. It's been a pleasure. And don't forget to share this podcast so that others can hear all about these projects and other stories.
Take care, everyone, and I look forward to having you along next time. <laughs>